0: Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Questions that Jesus asked, and we should probably do our best to answer. Uh, one question that you may be asking is, what is this painting up here? Let me explain. For several weeks we have been talking about a change, a shift. In the way we're doing things in our church, and we're seriously going to attempt to do exactly what Jesus said when he said, make disciples. Before he exited the planet, he said, go into all the world and make disciples. And we put the emphasis on going, but when Jesus talked about it, he said, do you realize I've got all authority now, I'm the boss over everything, and he laid stress not on the going, but on the making disciples. We in America, American Christians, we are very good at making Christians. We're very good at making believers. But Jesus is never interested in believers. He doesn't want us to believe things about him. He wants disciples. He wants apprentices. He wants people who will go where he goes and do what he does. And Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples. He told the original 11, I've been with you for three years. Now you take somebody else under, and you show them how to live and walk with me. And that's what each and every one of us should be doing, making disciples. The Lord is looking for disciples. And so we have decided over the next, we don't know how long, we're going to learn how to do that. In fact, we start today with a group of 14 that are going to begin discipler training right after this service. And over the next few weeks, we're going to find out how to do it, and then we're going to pass it on to everybody else. But to kind of highlight that, Pastor Marcelo will be painting during our worship time for the next several Sundays something to do with the idea of one planting one, discipling, pouring our lives into one other life in such a way, and so successfully do we teach them that they go out and they make a disciple, because you have to realize you are not a disciple of Christ until you're making a disciple. And you're really not a successful disciple until you're disciple is discipling somebody. So that's where we're headed, and that's what this is all about. So we'll be beautifying our sanctuary with those, and those will be a reminder. One plant's one. That's what we're working on. Well, we're talking about questions that Jesus asked, and and we should probably answer. 295, I didn't count them, I'm taking somebody's word for it, that Jesus asked 295 questions in the Gospels. That's quite a few. In such a small document, Jesus asked questions never because he needed information. He never asked questions because he couldn't get what he wanted to know any other way. He didn't use questions as an icebreaker to get to know you. But he used questions like a surgeon uses a scalpel to peel back the layers of stuff in our life so that we can be healed. That's how he used questions. And he's got a question for us today. As we ease into it, I want you to think about a time that somebody has irritated you, somebody has troubled you. Maybe it was a neighbor who intentionally played their music too loud. Ever had that experience? Maybe it was somebody at work who went out of their way to move something that you were using just to trouble you. I have a good friend that Learn patience. After he became a Christian, he was a welder, a brazer, And the other guys in the shop would walk behind him and step on his hose as he was in the middle of a project, and it irritated the fire out of him. But through that, the Lord taught him patience. But there were people that were intentionally troubling him at work. Maybe somebody interrupts you all the time to correct your story with pointless details. It just irritates you. It troubles you. You've been troubled before. You know what that's like. Well, today, Jesus will stand up for a woman that other people are troubling, bothering. I want you to turn to Matthew 26. That's where you'll find this interesting story of an unnamed lady who is troubled by a group of people. We will discover her name as we look deeper into the Word and find out that it's somebody, if you are a serious Bible reader, that you probably know fairly well. Now, this story takes place, Matthew 26, beginning at the sixth verse, in the home of a fellow by the name of Simon. It's in the city of Bethany, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem proper. Now, we know somebody else that has a home in Bethany. It's a trio of Jesus' friends, siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom Jesus will raise from the dead. Jesus stopped often in their home in Bethany, and this home of Simon is also in Bethany. And it's thought that this Simon may be part of that same family. In fact, it could be that Simon was the husband, perhaps, of Martha, or maybe their father. We know that because when John tells this story in John chapter 12, He names the lady that we're going to be introduced to that will be troubled. Her name is Mary of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So this may be Martha's husband that we're talking about or their father, Simon the leper, he's called. Now that's interesting because if he used to be a leper and he's been around Jesus any length of time, he's not a leper anymore. But that's what they reminded him called him Simon the leper. He was at that home. And Luke tells it differently and Matthew differently, John a little differently. When Matthew tells the story, he says, a woman unnamed, we know her as Mary. She approached Jesus as he's reclining at the table. Now, that means there's a dinner going on. Don't think about your dinner table. It wasn't like that. It was more like a little low table like you might find in a really nice Japanese restaurant where you have to get on the ground and sit on a cushion. And the people in those days would have laid with their face, their elbows up on the table or near the table and their feet back away from it, their head close to the table, and that's they reclined to eat. Forget the famous Da Vinci Last Supper painting where everybody is seated at the table And I've always wondered, why are those fellows all on the same side of the table? It wasn't anything like that. But this woman approaches Jesus, and she has a container, an alabaster container. That means it was a beautiful container all by itself and costly, regardless of what was in it. The alabaster is translucent. It glows. It glistens. You can see the liquid inside of it. This, this liquid inside is so expensive and so precious. It's come all the way from India. You don't just find it everywhere. And this liquid is so precious and so expensive that when the potter formed the alabaster jar, he didn't put a lid on it, he didn't put a cork in it, but he sealed it up with the alabaster so that there would not be danger of a drop getting lost. And she approaches Jesus and she knocks the neck of that thing off. And it says that she pours it on his head. And she anoints him with this expensive India made perfume. And it's so fragrant and so strong that instantly everybody in that home and everybody outside that home will smell that beautiful aroma. As she pours it over the master's head. But some of Jesus' friends, they're there at the dinner too. And they're indignant over this. They're angered over this excessive display of affection by this woman, by Mary. It says that they're indignant when they saw what she done. And their, their charge is, why are you wasting this? What you're doing is too much. It's too extravagant. Yes, we understand you love him, Mary. We understand that you adore him, that you're, you're in an act of worship. We get it. But you're really going overboard here. And then to justify their criticism that this is an obvious waste, they go to something that's close to the heart of Jesus, the poor. I don't really know at that moment how concerned they were with the poor. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But they knew that Jesus was, and so they made an appeal and they said, you know, this this could have been sold. And the proceeds given to help the poor. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He says something that's very interesting. He says the poor, you want to help the poor the poor you always have with you, you won't always have me with you. The poor you always have with you, it's outside the scope of what we want to do today. But I believe that Jesus is giving us a signal in that verse when he says, the poor you always have with you, he's telling us where we should plant churches. If we look around and we live in such a disinfectant, such a sanitized environment that we don't see the poor, we put the church in the wrong place. Because Jesus says, you should be in a place where the poor are always with you. I believe he's telling us where to plant churches there. He says, the poor you always have with you, but me you do not always have. And then he goes on to explain, read it in verse 11, for you Always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, that's his amen word there. Amen, I say to you, wherever the gospel, the good news is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her, and look at here we are, all these years later, talking about what she did. Jesus was right, wasn't he? He was right. This is Mary we're talking about here. When Matthew tells the story, and Luke remembers the story, he has Mary pouring this expensive perfume on Jesus' head. When John tells the story in John 12, he has Mary pouring the expensive perfume on his feet. It's very likely if his feet are away from the table, she may have poured it on his feet and it gone unnoticed, but no way could it go unnoticed when she poured it on his head. Everybody would have seen that and everybody would have reacted to that. Some people see a discrepancy. Oh, it says head and it says feet. Maybe it was both. All I know is that in Matthew 26, in the 12th verse, Jesus settles it all. He says, she has poured this on my body. So he cuts right to it, doesn't he? But go back to the way Mark tells the story from the way he tells the story. The people that see her do this, this extravagant act of worship, they are angered by it and they shoot looks at her. You heard the phrase, if looks could kill. That's what they're aiming at her now as they witness this extravagant act, and, and they are chilling glances that are being shot at her from every direction in that place. And, and if eyes could kill, she would be dead in that instant. And so there are expressions even. People are murmuring, and they're throwing insults in her direction because of what she has done in her extravagant act of worship. So the people in that place that day They saw this as a very bad thing, didn't they? What a waste. And Jesus says, why are you making trouble for her? They said it was wasteful. It was too much. It was extravagant beyond extravagant. And and again, they knew Jesus' great concern for the poor. They are his special friends. However, they got poor. We could go to places in our city today that are full of the poor. Jesus is right, the poor we always do have with us. And we would be able to look at lives that have been self-inflicted with wounds that are incredibly bad. And it's been a series of awful decisions, even sinful decisions, and they find themselves dirt poor and with nothing. And it's their own dumb fault they have shot themselves in the foot. Irregardless, Jesus says, However they got poor, they're still my friends. And they know Jesus' great concern for the poor. And so they appeal in that direction. She could have taken this and she could have sold it and distributed it to the poor. Just to give you an idea of how expensive this was. This little vial of perfume. Foreign perfume all the way from faraway India. In that little vial, there was enough perfume that it would have been worth an annual salary of a laborer, a skilled laborer, or or the annual salary of an army officer. In today's dollars, let's say around $50,000. That's what she poured on Jesus $50,000. And so they react by saying, you have broken this translucent, beautiful alabaster vial and you've, you've wasted it. And the powerful aroma is everywhere now, but it's gone. She, she didn't just, just dabble out a few stingy drops, but she poured it out entirely on him. This was so wasteful. It was such a bad thing. But Jesus says, no, it's not. It's a, in fact, Jesus will say, it is a very good thing. That what she did was not over the top, even at $50,000 worth. It wasn't too much. Because what this woman is doing is worshiping, you see. She teaches us something about good worship. This story can teach us if we, if we will let it. Good worship, good worship is a loving response to something that Jesus has told you. This woman had been told things by Jesus. He had spoken his word to her heart. He had changed her by the things he had said. By the secrets he had shared with her, by sharing his heart, he had moved her so much that she wants to respond in an act of worship that's beyond words. And so she takes the most valuable thing that can be imagined, $50,000 worth of perfume, and pours it on his head and feet. And it's all in loving response to something that he had said to her. You know, there's one thing we know about Mary, that she loved more than anything. She loved to listen to Jesus. She would sit at His feet literally and hang on every word. She could not get enough of the Word. She loved listening to Christ. She she would love listening to Christ so much that that her love for his words, for what he said to her, that that would earn her a charge of being a lazy layabout. That her older sister would accuse her of being lazy and not helping because all she wanted to do was sit at Jesus' feet and listen. And Martha would panic and say, Jesus, make her get up and help me. And Jesus said, no, she's done the better thing in listening to me. That's how much she loved hearing Christ. And so she approaches him this day, and her object of worship is this vial of perfume, her worship with the perfume. It's a loving response to what he had spoken to her because his words, listen, are life. They're life. Are his words life to you? Do you you find yourself looking into His Word and hanging on what He says? Anxious for more? Sorry when the time runs out? Looking forward to the next time that you can get alone and let Him speak into your heart? Are His words life to you? Have you you reached your point, a point in in your walk with Christ where you you cannot live? without daily communication with Jesus. It's a must. And you might get physically ill if you don't talk with him, if you don't listen to what his word says. If if not, if you haven't reached that point where you hunger and thirst for his word more than you hunger and thirst for physical food, If if not, then this story makes no sense to you today. And in fact, what does make sense to you is the grumbling of the crowd who said she went over the top with her worship. But for one who's heard Jesus speak into their heart, nothing is over the top. No worship is too extravagant. If, if, If you can't see that, if you've not reached the point where you cannot live without that daily communication with Jesus, then again, this story doesn't make any sense to you, and you will say with the crowd, enough with the worship. But He's spoken life to her, and now this is her natural response, not just worship, but extravagant worship. Good worship is a loving response to something that Jesus has told you, you see. But good worship is also a loving response to something that Jesus has done for you. What had Jesus done for Mary? I'll tell you what he'd done. Her brother had died. He died. And as he's laying in the tomb, cold, lifeless, Jesus finally comes into town, but to her thinking, it's way too late. And and remember her heartbreak as she approaches Jesus, and she says, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Her heart is breaking. But he walked to the tomb, and he called out her brother's name, and he brought him back to life. And he presented him to his family. He was back in the family circle now. And her heartbreak is over. And so the worship that follows is generous. And it is a loving response to something he has done for her. Jesus had erased the brokenness in her heart. See? Ask yourself, what has he done for me? What's He done for me? He set us free. That's what He's done. He's healed us. That's what He's done. He's healed our minds. He washes over our minds every day through His Word. He's continually living His life inside of us in such a way that we cannot help but change. And I'm not what I'm going to be someday, but I'm sure not what I used to be. And He did that. He's changing us from the inside out. He has plans for us that are beyond what we could ask or think or imagine. What has Jesus done for you? The Bible says He has transferred you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His marvelous light. He's caused you to switch kingdoms, see? And switch kings. That's what He's done for you. Is any act of worship Too much. Good worship, you see, is a loving response to something that Jesus has done for you. And good worship looks ahead. When this lady's critics are troubling her and shooting her those glances and second guessing her motives, they're not thinking right. Her critics had no sense of the days that they were living in. They didn't know that the time that they would have with Jesus was very short. They imagined that they had all the time in the world to pursue a relationship with Christ. They didn't. He would be gone in a few days. They would kill him. But they did not know that. They had no sense of the days that they were living through. It was the last days before he would go away. But they couldn't know that. But in verse 12 of 26, it's very clear that Mary knew something they didn't know. For she poured this perfume on my body, and she did it to prepare me for burial. They had no idea what was coming next. But her worship looked ahead. Her worship wasn't just for that day. Her worship was for every day. Looked ahead. You see, Mary knew something. She saw ahead what they could not see. And and we read it earlier in the service from that book that is called the Revelation, the Apocalypse. We, We take the word apocalypse in our day to be a blockbuster word that we attach to movies where there's lots of explosion and lots of destruction. But the word apocalypse means unveiling. It means to pull back the curtain. And in that apocalypse, in the Revelation, we read it together, where the curtain is pulled back on a day that is coming when all of creation will gather around the throne and around the Lamb, and we will worship with all of our hearts. No holds bar. It will be extravagant worship on that day. And worship will be the business of eternity. If you don't don't want to experience God's closeness on earth, why would you want to go to a place called heaven anyway? Because that's what we're going to be doing, worshiping. Not just one way, but a thousand different ways we'll be worshiping. If you you don't enjoy waiting in His presence now, then heaven will be no kind of heaven for you. And I can promise you that God is not so cruel that He would force you into a heaven that you would not enjoy. If you don't passionately love Him now, that's not the place for you. But oh, if you know what it is to be in His presence... And it seems like time stands still. And all of the busy things that are so important for us to do, they aren't important in that moment. And it is such a sacred moment to be in His presence that you almost don't want to breathe because you might break the spell. If you know what that's like, if you know what it is to melt in His presence, After a time of worship, you know what it is that that feeling of new, of clean, of young again. Then imagine what an eternity of closeness to a loving God is going to do for you and be like. It's an old song that says, oh, I want to see Him. I want to look on His face. If you know what that's like. And heaven is the place for you, you see. Good worship looks ahead to that. It's so one more thing that Mary seems to, to instinctively know, maybe supernaturally knows. She knows that this opportunity of worship, where she will break the neck of that alabaster vial and pour $50,000 worth of, on her Savior, she knows that that moment is not going to come again. That if she's going to worship Him that way, it's today, it's now, because she may not get the chance again. Think about it. You know the story. When Jesus is removed, He's lifeless, His body is taken lifeless from the cross. And and there is a rush to get him in a tomb, any tomb. It ends up being a borrowed one. Because the sun is going down and if his body is out in the open and it's not buried before sundown, there's curse upon curse upon curse. And So they have to get him in the ground. And obviously no preparations have been made, so everything is a rush job. And they don't have time to do everything that you would normally lovingly do with a body. And that includes anointing the body. They just have enough time to pry the nails loose and take him to a tomb and lay him in there and cover him with a bit of cloth. But there's not going to be any time to anoint his body, you see. There will be a a group of ladies who love him passionately, and they will long the next day to come and anoint his body and do what was neglected the day before. And they will want to anoint him the day after his burial, but the law won't allow it because that's a Sabbath day. And you can't do that kind of work on a Sabbath day. They're all kind of police looking and glaring and spying to keep you from doing that. They'll want to anoint him the next day for his burial, but they can't. And when they finally get to the tomb at the earliest possible moment, now the third day, he'll be gone too late. There won't be time to anoint his body later. So she does it now as he sits there in the home of Simon at a dinner party. It seems inappropriate. He's not even close to dead. He looks hale and healthy and hearty. But she will anoint him for his burial because there won't be any other time, you see. And so she does it then. To everybody else, it seems so inappropriate, her worship. It, it, it's too extravagant. It is out of place. But she's not going to get the chance again. Now is the time to worship. Now is the time to worship. Jesus led a castaway, a throwaway person in on an insight that was shared up to that point only within the Godhead. Only Father, Son, and Spirit knew this thing that Jesus shares with a woman with a very checkered past who's had multiple marriages and is now living with a man not married. She enjoys nothing but the scorn of her community to the point that she will not show her face in public and she goes to a well at an inopportune time when nobody draws water because she can't bear facing people. She's that kind of person. And with that person, oddly enough, Jesus will share something that only the Godhead knows. He will tell her, do you realize that we, me, Father, Son, Spirit, That throughout the ages of time, we have been searching for somebody to worship us. And we're not doing really well. He will share his heart with this woman. We wouldn't know it if he hadn't said it to her. Now is the time to worship. Because the Lord is seeking those. He's actively looking, searching, seeking. Where can I find somebody that will worship? Because He knows that we are at our very best when we worship. You see, now is the time to worship. Because it may not come again. So my challenge to you is make time this week, every day, to worship, to worship. Likely you have never heard of the town of Nisswa, Minnesota. But maybe you've heard about what takes place there every year. It's an event. Nisswa, Minnesota is known for its turtle races. That's what I said, turtle races. What they do every Wednesday afternoon in the summer is hold turtle races. And the way it works is the people of Nisswa and surrounding communities, they gather at a designated parking lot for the turtle races. Now, so many people come into Nisswa for the turtle races on Wednesday afternoons that it swells to many times its population size. And there are vendors there selling all kind of turtle-related products. And, and there are vendors there who will even rent you a turtle so you can enter the race. And, and the fans will gather early there in Niswa. And they place their chairs and their blankets in the best viewing sites alongside the parking lot. And in a recent contest, I believe it was last year's, 435 turtles raced in 15 heats over a six-foot course. And, And the way it works is this. The announcer calls the turtle holders to the mark, and he gives them the go. And then the crowd erupts, and it goes wild. And the handlers release the turtles, and they scream at the turtles, and they clap at the turtles, and they stomp at the turtles, and they squirt water on the turtles and they try and get the turtles to move. They're trying to urge those turtles toward the finish line, and the winners of those heats, then they, they race their turtles in a championship race every Wednesday afternoon. You want to know what the winner gets? The winning handler gets $5, along with a turtle necklace. Now, <clears throat> That is an uncharacteristic frenzy of emotion for these normally reserved people in northern Minnesota. They don't act like that, except when it's time to race the turtles. And to think that some people get upset when followers of Christ are too expressive in church and worship. Yesterday, I went to the rally at the fairgrounds for Bernie Sanders. I wanted to see it. I wanted to see it myself. I'm not good at estimating crowds, but there were three or 4,000 people at least there, filled, nearly filled and, and more than filled the grounds, nearly filled the stands. And the buildup was huge, and when he finally made an appearance... I thought how crazy, he's coming through the cattle chute. That's what he came through. But when he finally emerged and the crowd could see his white messy hair and his his light blue shirt, they went insane. They were screaming and stomping and clapping and yelling and chanting. And, And before the event had started, they had been singing to him. They'd taken popular songs and inserted his name in it, and it had all the earmarks of a crazy, crazy religious revival. It really did. And I listened as all of these thousands of people hung on his every word and would cheer as he promised all kinds of things. And I will tell you, I went because I think it's an historic phenomenon. I don't think we're going to see anybody quite like that again. He is an old-line socialist. And he was preaching revolution in no uncertain terms. And I don't think we're going to see that for a long time. And so I was rewarded. I got what I wanted. But I, I saw people almost go unhinged in their appreciation and their adoration and their expectations for what he would do for them. And I sat there thinking, and sometimes we think people clap too loud in church or shout too much, or if they move, that's inappropriate. You go back to what we were shown in the unveiling of what worship, true worship will one day be like. It's an extravagant affair. Can you worship too much? No. Worship is a loving response for what Jesus has told you, for what Jesus has done for you. Worship looks ahead, and you may not get a chance to worship again. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.